There's nothing you can do, I say. There's no food. I have enough to last until we get to Arid, and then a few months more. Even if your government gave me the astrophage to go home, I wouldn't survive the trip. Eat arid food. We evolve from same life. We use same protein, same chemicals, same sugar. Must work. No, I, I can't eat your food, remember? You say it's bad for you. We find out. I hold up my hands. It's not just bad for me. It will kill me. Your whole ecology uses heavy metals all over the place. Most of them are toxic to me. I'd die immediately. He trembles. No. You know can die. You are friend. But yeah, um, let's see. How am I doing? I'm good. I was just on the coast for the weekend, uh, which was really nice. Like, went out to uh, Seaview, um, Washington, which is just on the other side of the Columbia from Astoria. Mm. It's one of those bridges where, like, on the Astoria side, it's like a big, tall bridge because, like, container ships have got to go underneath it. And then... And, like, the, and the river is, what, like three miles wide at that point or something like that? It's quite wide. Like, yeah. it's it's really wide at Astoria. Um, yeah. It's really, at that point, more of a, like, you're like, this is a bay <laughs> at this point. Well, um, with, with a with a current pushing, you know, pushing out a, a third of the, of the United States' water drainage <laughs> like, <laughs> out, at least the continental, certainly the western United States. Yeah. Whenever we're in science fiction land, I feel like our our own like world, our life narratives, our life metaphors, also take on this sort of like grand scale. Yeah. <laughs> like we're thinking about continent sized stuff. Um, that part uh, of Oregon, I whenever I hear anything about it, I always think of uh, sometimes a great notion, and hmm. um, or Washington, and um, there's this moment where I think it's sort of the first kind of rhapsodic first chapter where Kesey describes setting a bucket of bright brand new uh, eight penny nails out on the porch and you know if you forget to bring them inside the house they're completely rusty by the morning yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everything is rotting from yeah. the 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 foggy humidity of the uh, coastal rainforest yeah it is quite wet there and that was definitely the experience of 48 hours there um but it was lovely um and i leave for uh the birkebeiner on uh wednesday you were going to the birkebeiner in, in my former part of the country the upper windmast you were very welcome to it i'm enjoying florida where the weather is much warmer than it will be at the birkebeiner yeah it's going to be fucking cold. Yeah, it will be cold. I mean, Wisconsin that time of year must be pretty amazing. I always wanted to go up to the UP. Um, there, I, like when I, the few times I've gone to Copper Harbor in the UP, which is yet like another five hours of driving north of where the Berkabiner is. Um, yeah. The, um, you get, you crest this hill near Copper Harbor and then there's this like pole that's like 28 feet tall or 35 feet tall and it's got a red it's got a several red lines on it and this is like this uh-huh. is the blizzard of like 1967 and that one's at like 18 feet and they're like this is the blizzard of like you know 1974 and that one's at 25 feet this is the blizzard of 2003 and that one's at like 32 feet or something Holy like that shit. like just like i was like i don't i didn't realize that there was that kind of uh 
you know, snowpack in the lower 48, except for maybe, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the Rockies. I, I didn't know that that happened, but yeah. Apparently. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we get into it? Um, yeah. <laughs> why don't, do we want to try, do you want to, do, do you, why don't we, e- do we each want to try a 3.5 sentence recap and see, and. Oh, so like each a, of us gets three and a half sentences to do one of the, one of the three major pieces of the of the the second half of the book is that what, what you i mean? was actually going to propose is we each get three and a half sentences to do the entire second half of the book and so oh, it's like a little yeah. bit of a competition yeah uh, okay I, I like it <laughs> i'm into it and, and without any time to rehearse or prepare because yep. i don't yep. i don't know what i'm gonna say <laughs> do you want me to go first do you want to go first do you feel like you're ready? Uh, you can go you can go uh do you want me to go first i've, I've spent a lot of time in plot land today so maybe it's a little easier for me go um, ahead and okay, um, so um, there are th- yeah basically three major arcs or ups and downs uh, over the second half of the book. Um, sentence number one: Rocky and Ryland Grace go to a planet named Adrian and almost blow up the ship while trying to collect a sample of Adrian's atmosphere. Uh, Okay, that's sentence one. Sentence two. um, Ryland and Rocky both almost killed after the sample collection, but they save each other, comma, and discover that there is a natural predator to astrophage that can save both their planets. That natural predator eats the Hail Mary's fuel sources and then later eats Rocky's fuel sources, comma, and Dr. Grace chooses to go and save Rocky instead of saving himself period now a fragment earth and arid saved (laughs) it's pretty good i don't know that i can beat that um uh certainly the first sentence all right here's uh, without thinking too much about it rocky and grace almost die collecting an organism that turns out to be the predator of astrophage and the savior of their planets, comma, named Taumiba. Nice. Good job. Meanwhile, <laughs> back in the past, Grace remembers that he was asked to volunteer for this mission, refused and was made to go anyway by Strat, period. The Taumiba starts destroying both ships. Grace figures, comma, but Grace figures it out in time and saves Rocky, period. Grace gets a happy ending as a teacher. No, I'd have to do a fragment. So X that one. Grace, happy. 
What's Rocky's planet? Um, Arid. Arid. Grace happily teaching on Arid. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, what I like about yours that I missed and forgot was that, like, oh, my God, the flashback about Grace realizing that he was compelled and forced to go on the Project Hail Mary is the emotional beating heart right. of this entire novel. Right. It's very ironic that that's that I forgot that this time. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like everything that I want to talk about that I've prepped, it, it, almost everything has to do with that. Too. Nice. Um, that yeah. to me, that's the most fascinating thing. So, so that's great. I feel like we both did a pretty good job of that. So let's. Uh, why don't you start yeah. us off with your discourse on the structure of the book and let me know how I can be useful to that. Yeah. So um, as I was thinking about this book and what we talked about last time, that there is a lot of video game structure to it that the opening chapters of the book essentially work the same way that a video game does, where there are escalating levels of stakes. And first, it's just, what is your name? And that's, the, the, that's what the book opens with. Um, and our main character slowly educates himself in the same way that you do in a video game through trial and error um, and learning how the game works. And there is a great book about structuring your storytelling for role-playing games called Hamlet's Hit Points mm. uh, by kind of one of the like luminaries of role-playing thought, um, this guy named Robin D. Laws. Um, and he and his podcast partner, Kenneth Height, have a great show that's just called Rob and Ken Talk About Stuff. Uh, Hamlet's Hit Points are is a really helpful book for game masters, mostly because it talks about structuring your narratives in ways that make your your players actually care about the game. Um, and there's this really great chapter where he goes through Hamlet and walks through the different kinds of beats that you can experience in, in any kind of, you know, really in, in any kind of narrative work. Um, and uh, the, he, he breaks things at, down into, let's see, what are the different types of beats? Um, so procedural, which is basically stuff happening. Um, it's plot, things like that that need to happen. Uh, dramatic, mm -hmm. which is tends to be kind of like emotional negotiation with others. And that can be, mm. you know, conflict where you're seeing people argue or fight or that kind of thing. Um, but the nature of this kind of beat is that it moves the protagonist and maybe the other characters towards a place of positive inner transformation, uh, mm. which I think is really important for this book. Um, commentary, uh, which the book points out is, is should be used seldomly, but it's basically when you're like, okay, I need to get a lot of exposition in how am I going to do it in a way that's not just like turning towards the camera and being like, you might want to know about rocket ships. Mm. Um, and, uh, the book points out that like, you know, ancient history, ancient theater achieves this through choruses, um, Shakespeare uses clowns, stuff like that. Um, anticipation is when, is a moment when the audience sort of lives alongside the narrator and gets to experience, uh, upcoming success. That feeling of like, oh my God, something good is about to happen. Mm. Uh, gratification, just a general emotional upbeat, like a positive, a positive section of a book, a downbeat a negative emotion section of a book, 
Um, Just by the way, as you're as you're going through these, I'm scan I'm scrolling along in the book, and the examples of each are just wonderful. In and of I know they're great, aren't they? Yeah, Yeah, they're 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 so good. Um, uh, This next one, I was wondering if you had some experience with because you've been you've been working with like screenplay and teleplay stuff, but it's called a pipe, Um, a beat that surreptitiously provides us with information we'll need later. Yeah, and uh, it says the term comes from screenwriting parlance and compares exposition to plumbing. You need it for your house to work properly, but you don't want to see it. I had never heard that term before, but I'm very, very familiar with the concept of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I was one of those where I was like, oh, yeah, this is necessary. Um, uh, but, you know, I think it's one of those that until you see it drawn out, you're like, oh, is this really, you know. And there's there's you know, several moments of that when I was kind of reading for like, oh, like, um, and we'll get to this when we kind of go through it, but there's a moment in chapter 16 where we learn that Ryland is coma resistant. Right. Um, and it's a flashback. Um, and that's definitely a moment where you're like, oh, I think I'm seeing why he probably ended up on then, the ship. Uh, Dubois' nitrogen is a pipe. Yep. 100 percent yeah that's uh yeah that that's uh needed needed to be there for another reason but ends up being 100 percent crucial to the survival of our protagonists um, and, and interestingly he... it's it's introduced at the same time as a gun which does raise the question of whether or not the gun is going to prove to be important but i I've, I've identified a concept that i'm calling the false chekhov's gun uh which <laughs> which is uh where the gun is, but we can we can move on. But um, I'm, well, it's I'm like just a, it's riffing. like a shell game. Like right. like too many like so many people are used to the concept of Chekhov's gun. Right. When you see a gun come up, your attention is drawn to that, and the the author can be doing some like narrative sleight of hand. In this um, case, the fake gun actually hides the pipe of the uh, nitrogen. Totally. Um, question beat. Uh, question introduce a point of, point of curiosity we want to see um, uh, satisfied. Uh, the example in here is the crew of the Nostromo receives a distress call, and great. you're like, perfect, <laughs> great example. Like, uh, great example. Or in, in our book, uh, something <laughs> seems to be keeping the astrophage in check at Tau Ceti. Yes, what could exactly. It be? What is that? Um, and then a reveal. A reveal provides the information we were made to desire. I kind of went through the second half of the book because um, what I really – what the thing that I feel like is masterful about this book, um, like we talked about last time, he's not really into like big lyrical flights of fancy. Um, the writing, even though there are moments that are quite lovely in their sort of like simplicity and their rep- repetitiveness in a good way. Um, it's the prose is generally tuned to clear, effective, straightforward writing. Yeah. And I think the, I think the, you know, and it would be easy to look at a book like this and see a lot of like middle stuff, like middle brow, like, oh, it's sci-fi. Oh, it's about saving the world. Oh, it's a bromance. Um, and miss the fact that actually I think that it is really quite elegantly plotted. Um, because in the second half of this book, we get a series of challenges, um, of different kinds of beats, um, of upbeats and downbeats. And what's really interesting is every upbeat raises the stakes. When they go to the planet Adrian, 
um, they don't have, they don't know what they're looking for yet. They know that they need to get a sample from the, the planet. And they go through this amazing and very uh, high stakes hijink where the Project Hail Mary is pointed at a 30 degree angle, sort of bouncing on the atmosphere uh, by using its spin drive. Um, and because of the enormous amount of energy from the spin drive, basically ionizing the atmosphere, trailing a 10 kilometer chain <laughs> made of xenonite, all to collect a, a sample of Adrian, planet Adrian's um, atmosphere, which may hold the clue to mm. saving both Earth and Arid. They're successful. They rupture two of the fuel tanks and both Grace and Rocky are almost killed. Uh, Grace through the fact that he, the, the ship is put into a spin that he can't control and he's basically going to black out and die on the Project Hail Mary. Rocky comes into his part of the ship to save him and Rocky is therefore almost killed. Um, maybe Rocky is saved. Maybe Grace is saved. Um, and they do discover that they there is a natural predator for astrophage. So now they have like the thing they're looking for. So now the stakes are up. Because even before then, the stakes were high. Two planets. But since humans are like loss averse, now that they've got the thing... Now the stakes are even higher. Right. And so now the stakes are about like, okay, we're successful. We've got it. Now we have to get out of the atmosphere. Now we have to get, oh shit, it's eating the fuel. The thing that we just thought was amazing is eating the fuel. Like now what? Um, and then there's like a whole nother arc of that, um, of moving through, figuring out how to get the Project Hail Mary working and figuring out how to breed nitrogen resistant Taumiba <laughs> so it can survive in both Venus and three worlds atmospheres and save Arid and save earth. Um, and we think we've done it success. Like, Oh, um, but in the same way now that success breeds the next raisin stakes, which is Rocky is left derelict and grace has to make a big choice whether he is going to save himself or save his friend. And, and what's funny is like the stakes of earth are sort of satisfied in like a little bit of a hand wave. He's like, I sent the Beatles to earth and I went looking for my friend. Um, and so the stakes shrink from solar system sized of this, the fate of two planets to personal sized, yeah. like the fate of this man's way of thinking about himself because of his behavior to his friend. And the book then becomes like a personally emotional, like very high stakes novel. Redemption narrative. Yeah. And, and that's the reason we find out, that's the reason Grace has amnesia. And that's the reason we find out about his, I, I hesitate to use the word cowardice, although that's, that's the term, but it, that's such a pejorative what we're calling cowardice is an extremely normal human way for somebody to feel in the situation that he was in. But Grace feels that he's a coward. And, yeah. and so the stakes are he's been called a coward by Strat. He himself feels he's a coward. 
And so his very last action taking in the third beat of the second half is to do something completely selfless uh, to rescue his friend because as far as he knows, he's going to die too. And that is, you're right, the stakes have collapsed. And I think, you know, we should, first of all, we should publish this chart uh, at uppermiddlebrow.com, listener, and on social media so people can explore it. Because I think it would be hard to follow the work that you've done here in terms of you've broken it down into quite a few beats with yeah. quite a few um, beat labels here. Um, and you've given a few examples. But I agree with your general point, and it reminds me of a story that I'm somewhat familiar with. And I think your general point is that the structure of this book is where the elegance and the beauty of this book lies. And the way that you know it is that the, the moments of gratification and the, the make you feel really good, the bring downs make you feel really bad, you don't notice the pipes until they're relevant because yeah. it's if you see it right away it's less fun right you know when you when you have a plot element that's been properly foreshadowed but is still a surprise that is the most satisfying form of where you're like that makes total perfect sense and i had no idea that that was going to happen and then you read the book the second time you start noticing the pipes but then you don't mind them because you're you're admiring the elegance of the plumbing. The important emotional beat is knowing that Grace actually didn't volunteer. He was forced to go on this mission because he was a coward. And that is the emotional stakes that have to be overcome in the very final beat. Mm -hmm. You don't see it coming when yeah. Grace turns that rocket around and goes, help Rocky out. Like, I don't know if you had a tear in your eye or not, but like... Oh my uh, God, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it is so satisfying. Yeah. Um, and but it's also not surprising. And this actually this is the, my one sort of mild complaint about this, perhaps, is that one of the things that maybe throws it off a little bit, though, is that by the time we learn that he was a coward, he has already risked his life to save Rocky once. Mm -hmm. So that was actually kind of like one of my questions for you is like, is I, that a little bit of sand in, va in the Vaseline right there? No, it's not. I, I have an answer for this. Go um, ahead. And uh, this is one of the great joys of, of amnesiac characters is that you can have them do things that are out of character before they have the revelation of who they actually are. Yeah. And so because up until the point that they learn about who they are, they're essentially a blank slate to themselves. Um, and so I think him choosing to save Rocky in the, you know, right after Rocky saves him is a piece of like creating his new um, personality. And because all he has to go on at the moment is the knowledge of the past six to eight weeks of forging this very close friendship with this alien. And so he saves him and it makes it even more powerful then to realize like, oh my God, like I am, I was a coward. And I think that probably the, that might be the character shift that we want in a novel or a short story, but because it's so brilliantly structured, Weir hides it like another piece of pipe. It's just mm -hmm. a piece of plausible behavior that we've seen so far. And then it makes it more plausible. I would even say inevitable 
that he goes and saves Rocky. Well, and in that moment where he saves him the first time, he does not, he does not, he's not trying to sacrifice himself to save him. He does get burned, and so it is a, it's a kind of clue that there is the possibility of redemption for the cowardice. Mm-hmm. He's been shown that he's willing to risk his life to save his friend and to and to risk and, in fact, um, it, it receive damage, physical damage. He gets burned. He gets uh, it, it chemically burned and physically burned from the ammonia um, and from touching uh, Rocky's carapace. Um, and so you... you so, and I think you're right... That does make it when he sh- turns the ship around in the penultimate chapter and goes and rescues Rocky. You're not, sh- you know, th- that that's that's consistent. It, he his and 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 so you're able to both have the emotional stakes of is he still a coward or not, with enough prefiguring so that when he does it, that doesn't feel like it just came out of nowhere. It feels like yeah. he has experienced growth. He's changed. Yeah. And I think that's the the magic of this particular book is that it's a series of, of upbeats and downbeats. The upbeats get higher and the downbeats get deeper, but the trend line is up. And then there's a moment in the last two chapters of the book where Andy Weir like pulls like the carpet out from under you and what you thought were like galactic level stakes turn out to be very personal level stakes. And, you're, and it, it even heightens it even more that you're like, wow, Ryland Grace was a total asshole. It took the perhaps elimination of two species for him to learn how to be a human, how to be a good human. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's what I think is so remarkable about this book is that it does this incredible double life of like a very straightforward, very readable yarn with a really powerful emotional reversal towards the end of the book that feels that like you said, like, yeah, um, reading the, the, the reading that I have prepared is the, the reading that definitely made me like choke up when I was reading it. Do you want to do that one? I was going to put mine towards like your question about happy endings. Um, so let's see if we can get back around to it. Let's go with where you okay. were going to go next. Okay. And, uh, and then we'll see if my reading fits with your happy ending part. One of the themes of this book, I think, is a moral dilemma. So so there's Grace's journey as a protagonist, but there's also, I would say this, there's, there's Rocky, but to me the real secondary protagonist is Ava Strott. Ava Strott makes, I think, the most challenging moral choice of this mm-hmm. book, which is... Essentially, there's an explosion at Baikonur. The primary and sec and backup science crew member of the Project Hail Mary mission are both killed. And the third backup, we learn, um, who has coma resistance, is in fact Rylan Grace. Um, and this satisfies a mystery this entire time. We're kind of like, wait, why did this guy get here? Because there were two people... Uh, who were supposed to be on this mission, they die at the same time. Everybody on Project Hail Mary wants Grace to be the crew member, and he is understandably reluctant because it's a suicide mission. And he's mourning his friends. I don't necessarily see him as an asshole in this moment. He only has a few hours 
mm-hmm. kind of figure out what he wants to do. Um, so Ava Strat says, Grace, will you be our crew member? Um, he says, I need a few hours to think about it. A few hours go by. He comes back. They have a confrontation in her office with a soldier. And he says, I don't want to go. I don't think I should go. I think I'm more useful here. I need to help my kids prepare for the coming apocalyptic event. And Strat says, that's bullshit. You're scared. And he says, yeah, you're, you're right. I am scared and I'm not going. And he starts to leave and the soldier stops him. And she says, well, I'm sorry it came to this, but I'm going to make you go. And essentially, we're going to knock you out. We're going to put you on the ship and we're going to give you medicine that's going to give you amnesia. So by the time you're going to be so far into the mission and solving the, the, the problem of astrophage that it's going to be too late for you to, to sabotage the mission. You're going you know, to stick with it. I know deep down you're a good guy. You're not going to sabotage the mission. Given no other choice but to save humanity, you're going to give it your best. So that's the end of that chapter. Then we get some more, you know, Rocky and Grace in the present, you know, dealing with Taumibia or whatever. And then we come back to the where I want to do my reading, which is the final confrontation between Strat and Grace. So he's been in jail for a few days. They take him out of the jail and they take him to Grace's office and she starts talking about how she studied history. And she talks about how through most of humans, humanity's existence, we've not had enough food and we've been in constant warfare with one another over food. But the fun doesn't stop there, she said, because once the desperate, starving countries start invading each other for food, the food production will go down. Ever heard of the Taiping Rebellion? It was a civil war in China during the 19th century. 400,000 soldiers died in the combat and 20 million people died from the resulting famine. She wrapped her arms around herself. I've never seen her look so vulnerable. Malnourishment, disruption, famine, every aspect of the infrastructure is going to food production and warfare. The entire fabric of society will fall apart. There will be plagues too, lots of them all over the world because the medical care systems will be overwhelmed. Once easily contained outbreaks will go unchecked. She turned to face me. War, famine, pestilence, and death. Astrophage is literally the apocalypse. The Hail Mary is all we have now. I'd make any sacrifice to give it even the tiniest chance of success. I lay down on my bunk and faced away from her. Whatever lets you sleep at night. She walked back to the door and knocked on it. A guard opened it up. Anyway, I just wanted you to know why I'm doing this. I owed you that. Go to hell. Oh, I will. Believe me. You three are going to Tau City. The rest of us are going to hell. More accurately, hell is coming to us. I, the thing that surprises me about Grace's relationship with Strat is that we never see that soften. Even when he's in space later, like he's still like like oh, I'm gonna get home and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell her off like, and it just it, that's it doesn't seem to square and maybe what Weir is doing is showing us a little bit of like like the leftover Ryland yeah. Grace, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, but I I really love that section 
everybody from time to time, I think, experiences selfish feelings. Yeah. Uh, and everybody from time to time has aversion to self-sacrifice. And um, I've been in situations where maybe I felt like some institution was asking me to sacrifice safety or something. And perhaps the institution felt like it had a good reason for doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think what can really, really feel cruel is when one doesn't feel like one has a choice. Um, and, and I think Strat is basically saying, you don't matter. <laughs> There's billions of lives at stake and compared to them, you don't matter. And that might be objectively true, but at the same time, I think anytime a human's autonomy is taken away from them, that is also a terrible, terrible thing to take away mm -hmm. from anybody. Yeah. And Strat clearly feels bad about it. Grace feels angry about it. I think it's good in a way that he stays angry. But what I, I think is interesting, too, is, is I do think it raises the question of the need of the many versus the value of autonomy. And I think that liberty, autonomy, might be my chief human value. Yeah. And depriving somebody of their autonomy and somebody of their liberty, forcing somebody to make a sacrifice they don't want to make, you know... Commander Yao, I think is his name, the Chinese uh, commander, he won't, he's not willing to do that. He's basically saying, I'm not going to have someone who's not a volunteer on my mission. Um, he's taking a kind of Kantian moral stance. It doesn't matter whether or not billions of lives are at stake. I'm not going to deprive somebody of their humanity. And Grace makes mm -hmm. a different decision. She says, I am going to take away your sovereignty and I'm going to do it in a really cold blooded way. I'm going to knock you out and I'm, you're even going to forget that I did that to you right? so that, so <laughs> that I can manipulate you. And what I think, and this is where the kind of happy ending thing comes in is that I think part of what your point about the beauty of the structure and the positive and negative beats and the buildup, it allows us to get to a happy ending because Andy Weir has put the characters and put Grace through hell. And I think for something to, to kind of come across as upper middle brow or literary, if you're going to have a happy ending, it has to be hard fought. It can't right. be an easy happy ending. And so that's achieved. But the thing that the happy ending, I think, does take away is a fair accounting of Strott's moral decision. Mm. Because it's possible that Strat would have sent Grace into space and they would have failed anyway and his sacrifice would have been completely in vain. Mm -hmm. It's possible that Grace would have died in space, it was likely, but instead Grace gets a pretty happy ending. You know, he's got to deal with some malnutrition and some heavy gravity, but where he ends up, the happy ending, in a way, it, it might take away this book's ability to really grapple with Strat's case because everything turned out okay. So mm -hmm. it clearly was the right decision. But what if it had been the wrong decision? Like, what if humanity had been blown up anyway? What if everybody had, like, killed each other in a nuclear war? What if Grace had failed? Or what if Grace, in fact, had starved to death, as he thought he was going to do, um, when he, you know, almost ran out of food? 
Um, and so I, I, that's just kind of my observation around the happy ending is that even though I think that the happy ending was earned as a craft, I think the downside of the happy ending is that it it kind of cheats the moral question around Strott's decision uh, to deprive Grace of his autonomy. Yeah, totally. And like, I think, you know, there's there's a there's an easy solution that I'm glad he didn't take, which is to like, let us know what happened on Earth. Mm. And the reason the the reason I think that this question hovers in an uncomfortable and useful way is because we don't know what has been going on on Earth. We don't know if there has been war. We know that they we know they fixed the problem because we do find out in the last chapter that Soul returns to normal luminance. Um, but we have no clue about the intervening like hellscape, which still was probably pretty bad. Yeah, although one can assume if there were still spacecraft that things could things didn't get as bad as they could have gotten you know yeah, yeah. Um, we're not in like station 11 territory right. um you know or anything like that um but yeah I, I i hear you that yeah the the happy ending does but that's that's such a i mean this we're in the no blood no foul territory mm, right and you're like really <laughs> like like you can hurt someone real bad on a basketball court without causing blood sure <laughs> and like and um and that's you know that's taking the a idiom where to the letter of the law instead of the spirit but yeah i see what you're getting at and i think that it is necessary um because what this book needs to function what any book needs to function is a tension of ideas and strat is willing to basically um release her inner fascist to like get the job done and then you know um and grace's perspective is more of a humanist kind of thing where we're talking about you know that personal choice and personal freedom um are the most important things that can be that that so that can be happening um and yeah, if it was an unhappy ending, it would be like, oh gosh, unhappy ending on top of like a revocation of uh, <laughs> of free will and autonomy. That would be pretty bad. That would not be that would not be fun. It would be like a Lars von Trier film or something like that, where <laughs> you know the the narrative is actually unsatisfying, but the exploration of the moral dilemma becomes very satisfying, um, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it, it's almost impossible to imagine this book with an unhappy ending. It's hard to imagine. I feel like it's rare in the sci-fi genre for that to happen. And mm. I don't quite know what I to make of it other than there are kind of different paths to what we might call upper middle brow. And I, once once certain paths are chosen, other paths are no longer an option. Mm. And if we're going to have an happy ending and if Grace is going to not die and if grace is and particularly a happy ending for grace like you could have a happy you could have a version of this book where grace turns around helps rocky and die he you still might call that a happy ending because he saves earth they save arid and grace has his growth um and i guess maybe even what i'm getting here is that 
not only does he have his growth, not only does he save everybody, but he actually gets to have a happy retirement teaching a bunch of five-legged spiders about the speed of light. And, you know, a very cute scene of, of him kind of playing the organ oh my God. and speaking Iridian <laughs> and a bunch of little mini Rockies, like, raising their, their claws, you know, um... That you know, that's that's lovely. It's beautiful. Um, we want that for him, um, but I, I do think it also forestalls the possibility of really, really absorbing the emotional totality of Strat's choice in sending him mm-hmm. against his will to sacrifice himself. And I think you know, I've been interviewing or reading interviews with a number of teachers um, who were asked to return to the classroom uh, during the pandemic before many of them felt it was safe for the sake Mm -hmm. of the broader society. And I think that I'm particularly tuned to that uh, resentment that one might feel when somebody is asking somebody to put themselves at risk, but particularly somebody the person asking you is not also taking on that risk. And not, not that Strat wouldn't, but Strahd is not, her role is mm-hmm. not on a spaceship. Her role is to be doing the, the, the sort of the thing that she does. But still, Strahd is safe. And I just think there's an inherent human resentment in that situation. I can't, mm-hmm. maybe Grace shouldn't have been a coward. Maybe he should have volunteered to go on the mission. But I can't begrudge him his resentment. I think I, think I would resent being Shanghai'd onto this mission and having my memory taken away from me yeah forcibly yeah, totally <laughs> i think i would resent that deeply um and maybe maybe one day i would come to to see that strat made the right decision or made a good decision but i don't think i would i don't think just because things turned out well for me i would be ready to do that right away totally yeah and i think that book, and i think that makes it a better book too that right, he's still i was angry. just about to say yeah. i was like book would not succeed without that like without that real radical raising of personal stakes no and you like, would have a you'd have a pretty good ordinarily good like probably would still sell sci-fi novel without that yeah. if yeah. everything were the same this would still be a delightful first contact novel but i do think it is the fact that grace refused to go on the mission and strat made him grow that elevates this book on you know, we're discovering, you know, you asked me, well, what is upper middle brow? We've been having that conversation. And I think that's what elevates it to that point, because it really makes it emotionally and morally complex story, as opposed to a simple adventure story that the good guys win in the end. Which, you know, is one of those things where, you know, I mean, like science fiction is, it, it generally is a positive genre yeah. because like the, the movement of science is towards illumination. Like that's the whole point of science is to like figure things out. Um, and it would generally make for like really not fun books. If you're like, Oh, the science didn't work. Everybody died. We should at some point read the three body uh, uh-huh. trilogy. Uh, have you read those? No. Okay. Uh, Chinese. A uh, guy named, I want to say, I believe his name is uh, Lu Xixin, if I'm saying it correctly. I think he's considered like the greatest Chinese sci-fi writer, certainly of this mm-hmm. era. And Ken Lu, the Chinese-American writer, has been translating his novels uh, brilliantly. Um, so those, those one day, um, those would be interesting to read in light of the conversation we just had. But... Uh, that's literally a story for another time. Or three <laughs> stories for another time. 
I think that's a good place to go to my reading about the um, the denial that comes along with friendship. Yeah. Um, because I think it, like, we get to we get to a place uh, like Grace gets to a place where he is able to make the ultimate sacrifice for a friend. Um, and watching Rocky's reaction to it, I was like, oh, my God. Mm. I was like, I got to put this book down and like go for a little walk around the, around the block. Is this like, you know, can die? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one got me, too. Yeah. So um, context. Um, Grace has returned to find Rocky's um, derelict blip a floating in space. Um, Taumiba have eaten all of um, Rocky's fuel because when they were breeding the nitrogen resistant Taumiba, they, you know, of course, um, as Grace beats himself up for um, unforeseen things happen, the Taumiba also learn how to work their way through Xenonite chambers um, as another evolved trait. To, to hide from nitrogen, which I just, I love the image of exactly. the, the Taumiba being like, oh my God, run away, like hide in the Xenonite. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff's really I mean, dense, but it's better than the nitrogen. But so Grace has come back, saved Rocky, um, who is like very, very happy to see him. Um, and um, so he shifts from one set of bars to another. Those burned arms are hurting him, I can tell. What about Earth? Question. I sent the beetles with the mini farms. Taumiba 82.5 can't get through Iridian Steel. Good, good, he says. I make sure my people take good care of you. They will make astrophase maybe for you to go home. Yeah, I say, about that. I'm not going home. The beetles will save Earth, but I won't ever see it again. His joyous bouncing stops. Why? Question. I don't have enough food. After I take you to Arid, I will die. You, you know can die. His voice gets low. I know let you die. We send you home. Arid will be grateful. You save everyone. We do everything to save you. There's nothing you can do, I say. There's no food. I have enough to last until we get to Arid and then a few months more. Even if your government gave me the astrophage to go home, I wouldn't survive the trip. Eat arid food. We evolve from same life. We use same protein, same chemicals, same sugar. Must work. No, I, I can't eat your food, remember? You say it's bad for you. We find out. I hold up my hands. It's not just bad for me. It will kill me. Your whole ecology uses heavy metals all over the place. Most of them are toxic to me. I die immediately. He trembles. No, you know can die. You are friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's so like you know we've all I think we've probably as adults you, you have all felt that desperate sadness of like trying to save something that is not savable whether it is a relationship or a close friend or something like that, in the like initial flush of sadness, you'll sort of do anything to, to, to surmount the hurdle. And we, like, it is such a great scene of watching Rocky deal with that. Um, 
And of course, Grace has had weeks at this point to come to terms with with his decision. And so again, it's another one of those dissonances that really makes great writing possible. Um, And my God, it's such a, like that, that section is just beautiful. It's, I mean, one of my favorite bits of the craft of this book is Rocky's English, um, which is like, it's interesting because it, it does make you think that you realize how inefficient English is because you can understand Rocky just fine without tense, conjugation, uh, many pronouns, um, and, and also, I don't know if you've ever been, like, you've probably had the experience, if, you're ever, if you've ever been in a place where many different people from a lot of different countries are speaking English, like, say, a kitchen with many immigrants mm-hmm. working, or, or um, this is the kind of English that people talk, like, it's first tense, like, the conjugations aren't right, you know, like, why no get astrophage from you ship, you know, and you're like, I understood what he meant. Um, and, and so the idea that he, Rocky's version of English creates a kind of filter and that the emotions in a way, his broken English makes you feel the emotions even more palpably because he has to reduce what he's feeling to very, very simple concepts. You know, it is, you know, can die, you know, um, it, it, yeah, it is, it is wonderful. And it actually probably dovetails right into my final question, which is, Does it trouble you that apart from physiology and even to some degree physiology, uh, Rocky is so similar to us emotionally and intellectually? Mm. I think he handles this really nicely because it comes up a few times like how how are we the same? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How how are we the same at like level of intelligence? Like why is why is Rocky not a thousand times smarter or a thousand times dumber? Um and there's there's nice kind of theoretical and hypo- hypothetical discussions throughout which then seeds the possibility to this point that they are emotionally similar. Um and you know, I mean most literature and most works of art are about striving for connection. Um, and so it's another one of those, like, is this too much of a coincidence? And then it's like, well, no, because like the story is what's important. And it's one of those where it's like, we talked about this last time where we're like, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of coincidences that are necessary. But if all of those coincidences didn't happen, then it's not story worthy. <laughs> um, and we want a good story and it's, it's plausible enough that there's enough because then we also have like some real problems of dissimilarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like, you know, Grace's epilogue of living on arid, like more than double gravity <laughs> is going to be uncomfortable. Um, and like, he's getting old faster and he walks with a cane. He's, he thinks he's 53, but he's not sure. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it doesn't bother me because he does enough work to make it make sense. Like we know that Iridians mate for life. We know that, that that's like, there is a, there, there is a companionship angle that is important to them. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think I think I agree. I mean, just to go down the list, like Rocky. I mean, obviously, sadness, friendship, happiness, excitement, but also sarcasm, irritation, humor, pettiness, particularness. Um, he has a number of very recognizably human traits, mm -hmm. and there's that moment where. Uh, Grace doesn't want to do an EVA or spacewalk, and Rocky says, "Lazy human," you know, and, and Grace <laughs> says, I've, "I've learned his sarcasm tone. It's the way he spaces out the language." And yeah, I think I agree with you because it's like, well, well the story wouldn't be worth telling if it wasn't. A, I mean, this is a story about friendship, and yeah. and I, you know, some of my favorite sci-fi novels are similarly humans and extraterrestrials seeking connection across difference you know the left mm -hmm. hand of darkness you know the main character which i hope we read at some point um the main character becomes friends with a person who has no gender um uh and only has sex organs for five days out of the month and sometimes they're female and sometimes they're male um you know and that's an interesting thought experiment but it, it their relationship has to contend with you know genly i not knowing how to relate to somebody who doesn't code as mm -hmm. male or female and having to learn how to relate to somebody like that which you know is actually an experience that you know, uh, straight cis people also have to deal with in our society, um, <laughs> you know, and, and that, you know, in our generation, we weren't necessarily raised to deal very effectively with that. And, and we've had to, to learn to do that. And it ac actually ends up being sort of literal. And so I guess that's sort of like what we're here for. You know, would I say this is a serious novel of what another extraterrestrial alien life might be like i don't know maybe not but also maybe so i mean yeah. you know like like i certainly other species have irritation embarrassment like cats play jokes on humans or dogs you know like how many people haven't kn known a dog that like gets wet and then like runs over to its like owner and then shakes itself off <laughs> to like get them wet like like that that's clearly they play um, so, you know, non-human, not particularly intelligent animals and like have all sorts of characteristics we think of as mm -hmm. human. So maybe a five legged symmetrical Doberman sized 400 pound space spider uh, would would, you know, have irritation, sarcasm, friendship, love, mm -hmm. sadness yearning all of those things it certainly makes a great story imagining yeah. him that way and that's and i think you know that's that's the thing that that i just keep admiring and admiring and admiring about this book is that it manages to do it manages to do so many things successfully yeah. um and that is just it's just so and it, and it does it without calling attention to itself and like, holy shit, that's impressive. Are, did, do you feel like you've made the points you wanted to make? Uh, are you ready to move on to trivia? I'm ready to move on to trivia. Cool. All right. Well, I alluded to this earlier. Um, one of the key plot points of this novel was an explosion at Baikonur. Uh, 
the launch facility, and it got me a little bit curious about launch facilities. And also, as you know, I am currently where I'm camping. I'm within view of Cape Canaveral and the Kennedy Space Center, and I can even take about a two-minute walk and look at a rocket on a launch pad across the Indian River. So I just got kind of curious about launch facilities, and I was like, how many are there? And so I looked this up, and I, I, I learned that there are somewhere between 28 and 35 orbital launch facilities, depending on who's counting. And maybe that's whether you count ones that are no longer mm-hmm. operative or not. And I should also say I was surprised by the location of some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you is, which of the following is not a location of an orbital launch facility? Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you four, and one of them is not. Um, so which of these is not? Uh, a, Yabna, Israel. B, Garzweiler, Germany. C, Kaurau, French Guiana. And D, Kimotsuki, Japan. One of those places does not contain an orbital launch facility. Okay, give them to me again. A, Yabna, Israel. B, Garzweiler, Germany. C, Kaurau, French Guiana. And D, Kimotsuki, Japan. I'm going to go with French Guiana. It is Garzweiler, Germany. Damn it. <laughs> I, I, it! It amazed me to learn that there is a launch facility in French Guiana. I had, uh-huh. I had no idea about that. Um, Garzweiler is the location of a large coal mine, um, enormous coal mine, like, like a three-mile-wide open pit mine. Um, as far as I can tell, the only launch facility in Europe is in Norway. Uh, which kind of that surprised me. Like you would think that oh. Germany and France would have launch facilities, but maybe we, the United States, launch the German uh, satellites, um, or maybe they're launched from Norway. But apparently, yeah, there there are no. There's only the one uh, launch facility in Europe. I was the way you know. So I was like, okay, Israel definitely has a launch facility because Israel has to essentially be self-reliant in a lot of ways. Um, And like their security apparatus is such that they need things like satellites and they need to be able to launch them themselves. So I was like, Israel definitely has one. Um, I was, I was like, you know what? Like it might be Germany because like Germany, like Germany has sort of disassembled a lot of its, um, like the, its ability to do stuff like that, to like put big things in the sky <laughs> that could damage or destroy other nations. Um, that's been sort of like a most of a century project for, for them. Um, and so I was like, but then I was like, no, but like, you know, German technology in the house. Uh, <laughs> I was like, that yeah. I could also imagine them not being able to resist uh, having a launch facility. The one thing that, that I consider is if you think about Central Europe, there's not a lot of empty land. Um, yeah, that was my other thing. There's not a lot thing. of wasteland. Yeah. And, um, and so it might be, I, I think you you need 
you know, miles. And like, like I told you, I can see the launch facility, but it's seven or eight miles away, you know? And I don't know that, I think it would be hard to find, you know, like 50 square miles in Germany, uh, where you could have a facility like that. You know, Israel has got a bunch of desert, Japan, you could imagine a small island somewhere, you know, where they're like, well, we lose one island, whatever, you know, uh, I don't know much about French Guiana. Uh, I think it's a lot of rainforest, but maybe there's, um, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. there's a bit of rainforest where they could, uh, build one. That one's kind of surprising to me, but anyway, sorry, better luck next time. I love it. I'm, 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 I'm comfortable with my, I, I bat about, I bat about 500 on trivia. You, you bat about 750 800 um oh, and I, uh, I just you you're you're you'd be inter- listeners because <laughs> we're not going to do it <laughs> um, somebody <laughs> go back and count um and i i bet that uh i bet that that jpd's hit rate is in the 70 percent rate i don't think that my questions are harder than yours although i think maybe I have a little bit too much fun coming up with the fake answers that lead uh-huh. you, that that tend to lead you astray. I think that maybe if if there if there's any reason for that, it's that it's that I I I, I get kind of lost in the joy of creating the the red herrings and maybe creating maybe, falsehoods. Maybe they're a little bit too effective. Uh, well, for mine, there are two incorrect answers, but they are real books. Um, ah. So I didn't uh, I didn't get into like full false uh, false narratives. Um, reading interviews of Andy Weir talking about the inspirations for this novel, um, is really interesting. A lot of the time he's like, no, there's really not too many other like inspirations for it out there. Um, and the way that it appeared was actually pretty cool. He, he kind of imagined a group of like, this was going to be a group of short stories Mm. and like Strat was this, like he had a short story for her and a short story Mm. for an amnesiac person who woke up on a spaceship and it all started coming together. Um, but a lot of, a lot of readers have kind of pointed out allusions and, echoes of other science fiction books that like certainly Andy Weir has read or been exposed to, or it's just in the general zeitgeist. So I'm going to give you three books. Your job is to pick out the the real book um, that is cited very often as mm. the probable like er text of Project Hail Mary. And to be clear, this is not Andy Weir is not the source of this. This is exactly other. Yeah. Uh, this is a readers, critics, people like that, writers. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's it comes up enough that I was like, okay, we can we can go with this. Um, okay. And I went and I went and read the uh, the plot summary and was like, mm, yeah, okay, that, that that feels that feels about right. Um, so your job is to pick out the correct uh, the correct book out of these three. Okay. Uh, Frederick's polls. Fermi and Frost, Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud, or Larry Niven's Inconstant Moon. Jesus. I don't know any of those books, and I I only know two of the three authors. Um, Can you give them to me one more time? Yes, of course. Uh, So Frederick Pohl's Fermi and Frost. Fermi, like Enrico Fermi, spelled that yeah, way? Yeah, Enrico, yep, Enrico Fermi, F-E-R-M-I. Okay. 
Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud, or Larry Niven's Inconstant Moon? Well, I'm going to go with the one I'm least familiar with, uh, which is Fred Hoyle. Um, and just in the reason is that I feel like I'm fairly reasonably familiar with Frederick Pohl. I'm reasonably familiar with Larry Niven. And I wouldn't put it past either of them to write a book with a similar plot, but I just feel like the one... It seems to me that if Andy Weir is going to have an urtext, it's going to be the most obscure urtext. So I'm going to go with... Uh, what was option B again? Tell me the name one more time. The Black uh, Fred Cloud. Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud. Yes, I will go I will go with that one. All right. All right, I'm going to read you the beginning of the synopsis page of this particular work, and uh, that will give you the answer. In 1964, astrophysicists on Earth become aware of a cloud of gas and dust initially thought to be a Bach globule that is headed for our, the solar system. The cloud, if interposed between the sun and Earth, could wipe out most of the life on Earth by blocking solar radiation and ending photosynthesis. A cadre of astronomers and other scientists is drawn together in Norton Stowe, England, to study the cloud and report to the British government about the consequences of its presence. The cloud unexpectedly decelerates as it approaches and comes to rest around the sun, causing disastrous climate changes on Earth and immense mortality and suffering for the human race, which is the beginning of the plot summary of Frederick Hoyle's The Black Cloud. You are correct. Got it. Yes. Got it. Um, it sounds great. Uh, yeah. The scientists, the scientists try to communicate with the cloud and succeed. It is revealed to be an alien gaseous superorganism. <laughs> Um, and it's surprised itself to find intelligent life forms on a solid planet. Uh, and it's great. Uh, the, I really want to go and read this. Basically, the scientists talk to the cloud and the cloud is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I was wiping you out. I'll go. And then like human governments attack the cloud with nuclear weapons <laughs> and, and the cloud Very. retaliates. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, also, that might be the urtext for Project Hail Mary. It sounds like a urtext of Ender's Game. If you think about an alien intelligence that didn't realize the way that it was acting was aggressive. Um, mm -hmm. And by the time it realizes that and communicates it, it's too late. <laughs> um, well, bravo. Nice job. Um, I, I've, I've read In Constant Moon. Um, it's a pretty cool little short story where the main character, uh, the, the he's out at night and suddenly realizes that the moon is like way, way, way brighter than it should be. Um, and realizes that perhaps the sun has novaed on the other side, <laughs> on the daylight side of the planet, oh. um, and spends, and, and has a few hours to figure out, like, can I survive? And if so, how? Um, when the Earth turns back towards the, towards the sun. I suppose you might be able to survive if you had a submarine, uh, or if you were near the Baikonur space station and had the, <laughs> had the access code. I don't know, that, I don't know there are a lot of, ways of surviving a supernova unless it was just a, a little mini supernova. a little nova yeah i, yeah, I need like to little... i need to go and reread it it's been like again you know 30 years since i pulled it off my dad's bookshelf and yeah and i mean read it but it may be if it's not a survival story if it's more of a like a melancholia type again mm -hmm. lars von trier a sort of tale of like you know the world's about the end you have a few hours what do you what do you do what i what i was looking for where i was going with my trivia i've really wanted to um 
I can't really find any information about like what's the inspiration for the ship itself. Like mm. what's the like because somebody has must have come up with this idea somewhere. Um, and there's all sorts of really cool hard science fiction like examples of like how would you actually make ships like this? And uh, we we talked about one earlier, the Barsoom Scoop, on a previous right. uh, episode. Um, and I was sort of hoping like, oh, maybe there's like something out there that, you know, the prod, the Hail Mary is a blank kind of ship. Um, but I couldn't find anything. to Well, nature. and I think partly that's because, uh, uh, Astrophage seems like a relatively unique creation too. Right. So if it's, and I don't even really fully understand how the spin drive operates, but it does remind me of the Freeman Dyson I mean, isn't Freeman Dyson spaceship basically just a big cone and you set off nuclear explosions? In yeah, the yeah, cone yeah, yeah, and behind gives, it. Yeah, and <laughs> um, which uh, it seems like the way astrophage, the astrophage uh, booster works is similar, except for there's, was it 1,009 or 1,019 cones? 1,009 uh, spin drives. To, and but I don't I don't. He, he, talks, he talks about it in, in, in an interview. Hmm. You know, it uses like the mass conversion idea to generate light and heat out of photons. And if you're getting light and heat, then you're getting thrust. Um, right. So that's the... My recollection is that like, uh, what's his name? Dimitri, you don't get a lot of details exactly how it works. You just get a lot of hilarious like Dimitri moments, like the one that you read last time of like, okay, mm -hmm. time for science now. Good thing we're not very close to South Korea. <laughs> you know, and, and there's a certain... <laughs> There might be a little bit of hand-waving there, but it's so entertaining that, that he gets away with it. Oh, yeah, totally. So, um, Chris Bagg, will you read this book again in your lifetime? Yeah, I will. I, you know, I think that the context in which I'll read it again is another context like this, where I can read it with somebody else mm. who is a friend, and I can enjoy like, like talking about friendship with a friend and this book. Um, like that's what I think this book is like uniquely suited for is for, is for sharing and enjoying each other while talking about friendship and space and adventure. Um, so yeah, I will definitely read this book again. How about uh, well, you? that, that reminds me to, I've been meaning to say you as good podcast human. Um, <laughs> um you know, I, I don't. I loved I loved this book. I enjoyed reading it a second time. I actually don't quite know conclusively of it, whether I would read it again or not because I feel like I really know it now. And I I, mm -hmm. I definitely feel like there was more for me to discover this time. So mm -hmm. I, I guess my answer is I'm not sure. I Only if I feel like I would discover something if I were to read it again... Um, it's not, it's not a question of the quality. It's just a question of it's, it yeah. in a way is a kind of simple book, uh, you know, and, and, yeah. um, and although I think the context in which I would read it again, I would read it to sort of try to, we've both talked about how brilliant the structure is and how well the two plots weave together. And as an aspiring writer, if I were to read it again, it would probably be to try to internalize and study it um, or perhaps to teach it if I ever mm -hmm. found myself teaching narrative structure I feel like this would be a great book for teaching narrative structure advanced yeah, totally. narrative structure it's not a great book for teaching basic narrative <laughs> structure um, 
Um, so yeah, I'm not sure, but it's not a dig on the book. It's just a question of sort of the kinds of books that I tend to read again twice tend to be books that are dense. This book isn't actually not that dense. Um, and and, um, do you want to say, uh, what's next? Do you remember what's next? Yes, but I'm presently trying to find our spreadsheet that has that. I Mm. think, I think black science fiction is next. Yeah, yeah. Next, we head into Jesse's series, Black SFAF, where we will be reading The Parable of the Sower, the fifth season, and The Intuitionist. Is that correct? That's what I believe we're reading next as well. So uh, that let it be so. So next would be The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, one thing we haven't done in a while is mention that we are on social media. Um, so you can follow Upper Middle Brow on Twitter, which still exists as of this taping, at Upper Middle mm-hmm. Pod. Uh, you can follow me at Curious Dukes. Um, where can they follow you, Chris Bag? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Bag. I've managed to get my name <laughs> early on in Twitter. So just at Chris Bag or at Christopher Bag on Instagram. I might, I might have been using the one. My, my, you know what? My recorder just died. Uh, one second here. Um, um, and then we do have a five star review that um, we haven't read. Um, that is it the one by Chat GBT? to add to this one? It is. Yes. That, that's mine. That's mine. Oh, that's, that's you. Okay. Yeah. My, my, so your solution to self reviewing was uh, sort of acknowledging the solipsistic nature of that. My solution was going pure satire and awesome. pretending to be a a, a, a awesome. artificially intelligent chat robot well it's a five-star rating so i'm going to read it okay fine uh, the uh the title of this review is i'm unqualified to review this podcast five stars I'm sorry, I don't have the information to support that Upper Middle Brow is the best podcast ever, as opinions on podcasts are subjective and can vary widely. I can say the two hosts sure can charm a robotic heart. Well, thank you, ChatGPT. We are um, we are thrilled to get your attention um, because everybody else is paying you a lot of attention, ChatGPT. That is one smart artificial intelligence that wrote that. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Uh, Thanks for listening. uh, You as good listener, humans. browsers. This is Jenny Grieve. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the creators, hosts, and producers. Original music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Website and design by Chris Bag. For goodness sakes, please leave a five-star rating and review. Go fast, take chances, and we'll see you next time.